Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation for any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. Hi, everyone. If you're a big fan of finance Twitter, you're going to love this episode. We're having a masterclass with 10K Diver today. 10K runs a popular and anonymous Twitter account that beautifully explains complex financial concepts in digestible and engaging ways. We've been rabid followers of the Twitter account for the past two years, and we were thrilled when he agreed to come onto the pod and discuss his passion for education, how he constructs his thought problems, and what tools and theories he's learned in his self-directed finance education. A couple of definitions to cover before we crack on. A cockroach portfolio is a portfolio that seeks to survive even the worst circumstances, like a cockroach. The theory is to do this between a combination of four asset classes equally distributed, stocks, bonds, gold, and cash. A Monte Carlo simulation is a model used to predict the probability of different outcomes when the intervention of random variables is present. A black swan event is an unpredictable event that is beyond what is normally expected and has severe consequences like a pandemic or war. Ergodicity involves the probability that any state will recur. If you want to learn a lot more about this concept, please check out our episode with Taylor Pearson released in September of 2020. And finally, a Nash equilibrium is a stable state of a system involving the interaction of different participants in which no participant can gain by a unilateral change of strategy if the strategies of the others remain unchanged. Enjoy. Thank you, Diver. Welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I have to say that both Andy and I, we're so happy to be able to uh, talk to you today. And um, I am I am a little bit sad as well, because I thought that we were going to be the first ones to have you in a podcast. And then Jim O'Shaughnessy from Infinite Loops beat us to, to, uh, to it. Um, so, yeah. Um, for those that don't know you very well and are not following you, Can you provide us with a little bit of your background? Sure. So I'm a computer scientist. I don't have very much formal training in finance or business or investing or anything like that. But I did get started investing in 2011. And a lot of the concepts that fundamental investors need uh, that are just so basic to investing, I, I had to figure them out on my own. And it took me an enormous amount of time to learn these concepts, simple things like operating leverage or uh, what is depreciation or the fundamentals of accounting or what, why, why do you need to diversify a portfolio? How do you do that? Simple things like this, which an investor needs. It took me an enormous amount of time to sort of figure out uh, and work out for myself. And so I thought I might be able to add some value 
by sharing these things so that others who who are in the same boat as me who maybe haven't had formal training in business or finance or anything like that they may be able to learn these concepts as well uh and they may be able to learn it in a easier way than what i had to go through so that's why i started my twitter account two two years back and uh i was completely unprepared for how quickly this account would grow and things like that so uh i'm i'm now on podcast with you guys and um uh, i have uh, several followers on twitter and and things like that but i was completely unprepared for all this growth i'm i'm just trying to help people understand uh how to make better financial decisions that's that's it basically i think that saying that you have some followers is a very humble way to put your 2000 and counting uh followers after only what like 18 months of uh, going live with your twitter account uh well yes um uh, i've 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 been on twitter for about uh, two two years now so it's 24 months not not 18 months um and and i believe it's 200000 not 2000 but who's counting right <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the followers are uh, it's uh, luck plays a big role so on on twitter you you never know what uh will be what piece of content will be picked up by somebody big and retweeted and things like that so uh luck definitely played a big role in uh, in the account becoming so popular uh but i'm i'm just trying to have fun with it you you've um you've expanded a little bit away from just the the thought problems which you started out towards uh you know so, some more collaborative pieces with some other other people so could, could you talk about that um in a bit more detail right right so uh one person like me especially a guy like me with no formal training in finance and things like that i can uh i can only have so much knowledge uh and very often i want to write about something i want to learn more about a particular topic in finance and i find that i don't know enough about it uh but because i have this twitter account i can reach out to a few people who may be experts in that particular area and then uh i may be able to talk to them and get their ideas and try to understand them better and then write a thread about it or something like that uh, so for example recently we we did uh, i i wrote a thread about uh, something called the cockroach portfolio uh so for a for a long time i did not fully appreciate the importance of things like having negative correlations between the assets in a portfolio and so i was talking to these guys uh, jason buck and uh, taylor pearson they they run this uh, this uh, fund called the mutiny fund and they have an approach uh, which is based on uh, an approach by a guy called harry brown so harry harry brown uh, was a financial advisor um and he he was many things but among uh, those things he was a financial advisor and he wrote a book on uh, planning out your portfolio and how how do you allocate assets in your portfolio and so on and his approach he called it the permanent portfolio and the whole idea behind a permanent portfolio is uh, you're not just looking at the absolute returns that you get from the portfolio you're also trying to minimize drawdowns as much as possible and minimize the probability of ruin something like that so you you construct a portfolio for maximum survival even if you may give up one or two points in in terms of absolute returns because in the long run 
that is what will ensure um, so survival is the is the name of the game in investing uh, so i did not know enough about these topics but i was very interested in them and so i uh, contacted uh, these guys taylor pearson and uh, jason buck they are experts on uh, this this kind of thing and they run a fund that is based around these ideas and so we we got together and uh, we wrote a uh, a thread uh, about about uh, the cockroach portfolio they shared uh, some of their uh, writings with me and i read through them and so on so when when i find that i am out of my depth in a particular area i like to um, find somebody who is an expert in that and then uh, maybe talk to them try to understand it and then explain it uh, to my audience but you you're doing that through a new platform right that's not that's not only on your twitter account you are now but it's not on that's not on youtube it's it's like another is a different app that's correct is that correct that is correct so uh, i have something called a social podcast uh, the the social podcast is called uh, money concepts and it is through this app called colin so it's not on youtube it's not twitter spaces uh, it's a separate app and the the neat thing about this is uh, the social aspect so i i can talk for uh, maybe 15 minutes or something like that or half an hour about a particular topic and then uh, callers can call in and ask me questions and uh, i really like the interactivity of this podcast it's not just me droning on and on for hours about something <laughs> that nobody else is interested in uh, it's it's an interactive format and i like that a lot so uh, that i'm i'm doing that on the side and sometimes we have some very nice guests on Re- recently we had uh, nick nick majuli come on the show and talk about his book uh, we we th- this week we are going to have some uh, professors of probability uh, who, who who who's going to talk uh, about how to learn probability things like that so ha- having a show like that lets me invite people whom i admire onto the show and it also Uh, gives them uh, g- gives a broad audience access to these people to ask questions so for example we had chris bloomstrand on the show just uh, just a few days ago and this is berkshire week so uh, the the berkshire annual meeting is happening this week and uh, so a lot of people were able to tune in and ask chris bloomstrand questions about berkshire and about various aspects of what what he thinks berkshire will do with the allegheny acquisition and and things like that so so it's nice to have a platform like this That's really interesting. Um, I have to ask, why keep the your account so anonymous? That makes it so interesting. But what's the idea behind it? Uh, that that is a great question. So um, I work for an employer uh, who has some strict policies about uh, social media, and uh, they they don't force me to be anonymous or anything like that. uh they they let me use my name if i want to but they have a very stringent set of rules and it's just much easier to uh abide by all these rules if i'm anonymous so that's that's why i'm anonymous that's that's fantastic um and it it, it keeps it very very interesting i have to say um that's really that's really cool um being interesting is a byproduct of that i i'll take it <laughs> so your mindset and mental models are, models are developed down the more mathematical and engineer focused path but you have successfully simplified some very fairly complex subjects and used these mental models to other areas and you've been applying that to to finance but it's not only to finance you've 
you've uh, you explored so so many other topics. So, can you please talk about your approach to decision making using these mental models? And is there a particular framework that you like to follow? Right. Uh, so the first part about uh, finance versus non-finance mental models. Uh, so I, I find that if you try to understand the fundamentals of a subject, there is there are some fundamental concepts that you can learn and then apply to a, a variety of different subjects. So I'll, I'll give you a simple example. J just this whole idea of a state quantity versus a flow quantity. So... Uh, a state is something that you have at a particular point in time. A flow tells you how that state changes between two points in time, just that. So the, this state at a particular time could be you know, your, 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 the, the number of humans on earth or something like that. And the flow is uh, how, how many new humans are born and how many uh, humans die. So between two points in time, if you, if you know how many humans existed at a particular point and then how many were born and how many died, uh, you can predict what the, the future state of the system is going to look like based on the flow. This is such a fundamental idea. Well, uh, assuming that people don't go off to Mars and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, this is such a fundamental idea. And the same idea applies to analyzing financial statements. So the balance sheet, for example, gives you the state of a company and the income statement and the cash flow statement tell you the flows that are happening with the company. Uh, the same thing applies to uh, analyzing population dynamics or analyzing electrical circuits. You know, the, the state is uh, all the voltages in the system and the flow is the currents in a system or so on. Uh, so if you acquaint yourself with, with a set of basic ideas, it turns out that a lot of disciplines use exactly the same ideas and mental models. They may be couched in slightly different language and so on. But at, at a fundamental level, if you're the kind of person who tries to get into things uh, at a deep level, try to understand them from first principles, then you will find that a large number of quantitative fields uh, are very similar in the kinds of concepts that they adopt. So uh, there, there's no... Um, Applied math, uh, the, the math is the same for everybody. There, there is no real uh, demarcation saying that this particular math should have only these applications and not those applications or something like that. The same math that applies to you know, decision-making in a casino or something like that uh, may also apply uh, uh, to diversify a portfolio of assets <laughs> uh, or to take some uh, decision about um, you know, how, how to construct a bridge or something like that. Uh, so so one, once you understand the fundamentals, this, the same mental models uh, generally apply to a, to a wide range of different disciplines. And at least in my experience, I have found that to be true over the years. I have found that a, a lot of things, um, a lot of uh, concepts that I learned in cl engineering classes and uh, circuit design classes and things like that, uh, I'm able to apply them uh, fairly straightforwardly uh, to investing. But is there any any area of mathematics or any specific framework that you tend to or you find yourself referring more to more often? Uh, I talk a lot about probability 
um that's partly because i love probability as a as a subject it is so delightful to me um i i use a fair bit of uh, game theory um i i do uh, basic simulations the state versus flow models uh, to uh, to build a set of financial projections or financial models or something like that um there there is a whole set of frameworks and models that come with uh, something like accounting so if you want to understand financial statements and if you want to understand uh, how to invest in in companies uh, it's it's a good idea to learn the fundamentals of accounting so there is a set of models and frameworks that accountants use to think about companies and so on so i found them to be pretty useful as well then there is psychology psychology is endlessly fascinating to me um if you if you look at the work of uh, dan kahneman or some of these people uh um it's it's just amazing uh what what kinds of biases we we all have uh even if you know all about probability and uh, so on uh your system 1 thinking versus system 2 thinking as dan kahneman calls it the fast thinking versus the slow thinking so when you're thinking with your emotions or instincts you don't have time to map out all the probabilities and the decision trees and so on and so uh your your mind has a quick way of arriving at an approximate decision and sometimes that approximation can be way off and um, so this is endlessly fascinating to me how people have so many biases that they don't even realize and so on and um, the the madness of crowds we we, we see financial markets get into bubbles all the time uh, so so all these different concepts uh, are so interesting to me and they play a role in how i think about the world how i think about investing and how i make decisions and so on i think um your your followers definitely and i'm i'm one of them definitely appreciate the way that you boil things down to first principles and then then you turn it into a little bit of a game and and then you know from from there you kind of explain something which you know at, at its heart is should be quite straightforward but lots of people don't really understand it in the depth that you managed to to explain it to so um and, and we'll definitely go into a couple of those games a little bit later on but but you already said that one of the big topics which t- comes up time and time again is the idea of thinking in probabilities you you talk about you know outcomes as a range of outcomes and you think about the probabilities and the probabilistic outcome so may, maybe we can just talk about why is it so important to think in probabilities Uh, absolutely so uh, jim o'shanasi he he has this wonderful saying that we are deterministic thinkers living in a probabilistic world and and then he adds that hilarity or tragedy often hints you uh, and i think jim is absolutely right uh, so there are no certainties in life <laughs> this is a sad fact of life and investing or maybe a happy fact you know that that even if you buy a stock which you think is um, uh, has a very very high chance of delivering a good return there's always something that can uh, show up and uh, mess up your results so whenever you make any kind of decision uh, you cannot predict the future of the world perfectly and there are always any number of possible outcomes that can happen in the future and probability is just a systematic way to reason about a multitude of possible outcomes that can happen in the future so whenever you make a decision 
um, and that decision uh, could play out in a number of different ways. And you don't really know what you will get at the end of it. Uh, you, you don't know your payoff uh, ahead of time. Probability applies there uh, because you, you could have a number of possible outcomes and you have to reason about them. So for example, uh, Warren Buffett sold uh, airline stock at the, in the beginning of the pandemic. So when, when uh, the pandemic was just getting um, uh, very severe, uh, he decided that he's going to uh, sell all his airline stocks, right? Now, the question is, was that a good decision or a bad decision? Now, you can look at those stocks today and say, look, the stocks are much higher today than what they were when he sold. So it looks like a bad decision that Warren Buffett made. Uh, but one of the important concepts in probability is you don't just do a back testing. You can't just, based on what happened, you cannot tell whether something is a good decision or a bad decision because uh, you, you can take somebody playing Russian roulette, for example. Uh, so, so you get $1 million if you, if you fire a rifle, there is a five-sixth probability that you will make it and get a million dollars. There's one-sixth of a probability of death. So suppose somebody does this and then gets a million dollars. You cannot say that this guy made a good decision just based on the outcome. Because in an alternative universe, what could have happened was he could have lost his life, right? So this whole idea that uh, you look at the current state of the world and try to predict whether some past action was a good decision or not, uh, that whole idea breaks down because the current state of the world is not the only state the world could have been in. The world could have gone to any number of different states. And if you look at all those states the world could be in today, uh, you have to have some idea of that to tell whether a past decision was good or not. This is a, such a simple probabilistic concept. And thinking like this, it's, it's not natural for us to think like this. So to, to tell whether somebody made a good decision or not, you just look at the result and then say, if, if the result was good, yes, they made a good decision. If the result is bad, they made a bad decision. This is how we normally think. But if we think a little deeper, uh, we may conclude that even if the outcome was good, the process, the decision may have been the wrong decision to make. This is a probabilistic concept. So simple things like this are so important to understand um, in any, any kind of decision making, not, not just investing. So that, that is one simple application of probability uh, or probabilistic thinking. There are several other applications. So you can, you can talk about uh, diversification, for example. So we, we all know intuitively, don't, don't put all your eggs in one basket. We, we know that. Uh, so the next question becomes, okay, fine. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's great advice. But how many baskets should I have? And how many eggs should I put into each basket? If I, if I have 100 eggs, how many baskets should I take? And how many eggs in each basket? How should I watch those baskets? And so on. So that depends a lot on things like whether the baskets are correlated or not. So um, if, if you put all your baskets in one place where a, a thief can come and easily steal all the baskets at once, uh, then 
you know it doesn't really matter whether you put all the eggs in one basket or you put all the eggs in multiple different baskets they are all exposed to the same kind of risk right so these are all probabilistic concepts and um, th- there's this wonderful book called fooled by randomness by nasim talib when he he gets into all these concepts he touches upon all these different concepts in detail um, and a, a third concept is for example the the whole idea of uh, skewness so um, if you have it it doesn't if if you have a strategy say that that makes money 95% of the time but loses money 5% of the time is that a good strategy or a bad strategy you can't really tell because you don't know how much money it makes when uh, it it succeeds and how much money it uh, loses when it fails so for example if 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 you make a 10% return every time it succeeds but uh, you lose all your money when when it fails then that is uh, a very skewed a uh, set of probabilities even if you have a 95% chance of success uh, there there is a 5% chance that you'll lose everything and so you you would not put all your money behind a bet that looks like this this is a very simple probabilistic concept so it doesn't matter if the chance of success is 99.99% if there is a 0.01% that you will lose it all uh, then you don't go and put all your money behind it simple concepts like this these are all products of probabilistic thinking and uh humans are generally not good at this kind of thinking at uh, so that that's why i use probability as uh, as a tool to help me systematically think about what are all the possible outcomes that can happen uh what what are my payoffs in each situation and what are the odds of different outcomes happening just so i can reason about how to bet um and and so on um, that makes a lot of sense and you know probabilistic thinking is something we we've come back to time and time again on this podcast it's a, a recurring theme and actually this podcast was actually started when we had a conversation with Annie Duke um who wrote thinking in bets and you know obviously that topic is at the heart of, of that book but but one thing we always kind of ask our guests who think in this way is Yeah if you're not mathematically minded how can you get people to think in probabilities how can it's not it's not intuitive you said that before how can you get them round to thinking in this way uh that that is a wonderful uh question and well so today the kinds of tools that we have to think probabilistically uh, people did not have many years ago so it actually doesn't require a whole lot of math uh for you to just learn uh to understand the basics of probability so uh today for example you can, you can run uh, monte carlo simulations in excel or python or anything like that you you, you don't have to know how to calculate uh, a whole bunch of probabilities you don't have to know when to add probabilities when to multiply probabilities things like that you can simply simulate a set of outcomes on a computer and you can say okay run a million simulations and tell me uh, what what the odds look like and very frequently those odds will look something like reality of course if there are some very rare events or something like that the computer may or may not catch them but for most cases uh if if you know uh, how to get a computer to run a simple simulation of all the possible outcomes you can you can very easily use that to 
think probabilistically. Uh, and so we, sh we should sort of take advantage of the kinds of tools that we have. Uh, and, um, you know, if, if you need mathematical knowledge to, uh, to understand the ideas of Nassim Talib or some, somebody like that, then um, Talib definitely would not have sold all the books that he has because that many people don't have uh, the mathematical knowledge to understand. Um, so so if, if you take Talib's books, Fooled by Randomness or The Black Swan, uh, it's it's such an intuitive idea, right? It, it doesn't matter how many white swans you have seen. You may have seen a million white swans, but you still cannot say that all swans are white because who knows, there may be a black swan around the corner that you haven't seen, right? This is such a simple idea. It doesn't re really require a whole lot of math or anything like that to understand. Uh, so, and uh, if, if if the idea required math to understand, Talib wouldn't, wouldn't have sold as many copies of the black swan. Uh, so there, there are things that you can do uh, to just think probabilistically. Uh, people like uh, uh, just reading non-technical books, uh, like, like those written by Nassim Talib or Annie Duke even. Uh, so these are authors who've done a wonderful job at taking fundamental probabilistic notions, the ideas of risk and the ideas of skewness and the importance of diversification and the importance of betting in such a way that you, you don't risk total ruin so that you always live to fight another day. Things like this, uh, there are these authors who have made it accessible, uh, these ideas, to a, to a non-technical audience. And even if you're not mathematically inclined, you, you can read these books and learn the basics. And then there are, if, if you want to learn things in a, in a greater uh, depth, you can always learn the mathematics. It's, it's actually not, the, the fundamentals are not so complicated. So uh, the, the science of probability probably uh, uh, began with Fermat and Pascal, the, the mathematicians, and they pretty much figured out that there are only a few rules, fundamental rules of probability. And they figured out these rules thousands of years ago, uh, sorry, hundreds of years ago, many, many centuries ago. And it's, it's not that hard to understand the basic rules uh, that were laid down by Fermat and Pascal and to, to apply them to solving simple puzzles. So I, I love solving puzzles as a way to get into ideas and to wrestle with them and to think about how to take decisions and, and so on. So th this whole idea of drawing a decision tree to take a, deci to take a decision, just figure out what are all the possible outcomes and then just draw a tree with uh, with your uh, payoffs in each case and try to see if you're comfortable with those uh, payoffs or not. Uh, are you comfortable betting on that game or not? It doesn't require a whole lot of math to, to draw a simple decision tree. So I, I would say that the math is useful to know, but it is, it's not a deal breaker if you don't know the math. You can still, if you have decent intuition, uh, you, you can understand a lot of the fundamental concepts. And if you can slow down and find the decision-making process that lets you get into the system two thinking uh, that Dan Kahneman mentioned, uh, you, you don't need a whole, whole lot of math. You shouldn't just make all decisions uh, off the cuff uh, because your intuition can lead you astray. But if you just slow down, think about what are all the possible things that can happen, 
and take a decision based on that you you're like 80% of the way there without knowing too much of math even if the math is not the most complicated side of probabilities at a theoretical level it's very people find it quite counterintuitive to think in terms of probabilities right. so if that's the case how can you fight against that human weakness well um we are all subject to that weakness because we are humans <laughs> so to uh i i i would say that in in the normal course of life we make so many terrible decisions but thankfully most of those decisions don't really have adverse consequences so i would say when we are making a decision that can potentially have an adverse consequence then we should slow down write things down uh try to think about it carefully maybe build some models in in excel or python or something like that and just try to ensure that the most important decisions in our life we use system 2 thinking a systematic way of thinking rather than just our intuition so that uh, dan can uh, kaneman um, uh, and and richard taylor they they have this example of going to the movies right uh, so a, a lot of people if if they spent a lot of money on a on a movie uh, ticket and they go in and see that the movie is terrible in the first 5 minutes if they see that the movie is terrible they let the cost of the ticket affect whether they should stay in the movie or not there is this uh, sunk cost fallacy and the sunk cost fallacy is a, is a human weakness so because we have already sunk some money into buying a ticket for a movie or something like that we we feel that the money will be wasted if we walk out of the movie but that's really not the right way to think about it because that money is gone we are not going to get that money back uh, it's it's already sunk now the best thing to do is okay how do i maximize my enjoyment over the next 2 hours do i want to sit in this miserable movie or do i want to just get out and use that 2 hours uh, for for something else right uh, so that that is the uh, the right way to think about it uh, but still mo- most of us fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy we we throw good money after bad we throw good effort good time after bad and and so on but thankfully in a, in a lot of these cases even even though we are subject to all these biases uh the consequences are not that severe sure okay we may lose a couple of hours and we may we, we may have a not 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 have a good time at the movie but it's it's not a in in this particular case the sunk cost fallacy hasn't really hurt us a whole lot so we we don't have to worry too much about our weaknesses in situations where the consequences are not very adverse but if we are going to take say 50% of our net worth and put it into a stock or something like that now there the consequences could be terrible and so we have to be very careful about making those kinds of decisions so may- maybe 95% of the time we can live with our weaknesses cheerfully we don't really care because the consequences aren't that severe but the 5% of the time that we are taking important decisions there we should try to be conscious of our biases 
and there are wonderful books that are written about the biases we have charlie munger has this wonderful speech called the psychology of human misjudgment uh, dan kaniman has this excellent book uh, uh, chaldini uh, has this wonderful book called influence so there are all these tools that let us build a checklist of biases and if we just go through that checklist or something like that and uh, reason uh, while bearing in mind that we are subject to these biases i think for for the most part we can we can get away with the reasonably comfortable uh, life even though we have all these weaknesses in line with um, with uh, my previous question we had i don't know if you've had uh, you've have come across andrew c a elliot Uh, we had him on the podcast have you have you heard of him uh, i had not heard of him before i received your email uh, okay. n- now i've heard of him <laughs> okay that's so, thanks so to you he, he was on the podcast he has written uh, to my knowledge two wonderful books the his latest book is what are the chances of that and in that book the whole aim of the book is to try to help people understand how to get a probabilistic thinking and to be able to calculate some some probabilities i think it's a it's a very nice book and in that specific book he wrote the following which i'm going to uh read to you it's a, it's a quote that caught my attention he said outside the casino probabilities are very often of this kind degrees of belief either well well or ill founded supported by reasoning or not we apply the rules of frequentist probability to this subject subjective measures and they will and they will make sense. And so we often hear people push back against adopting probabilistic thinking to events in life that won't repeat themselves. So a judgment on the outcome of an election or whether or not Russia was going to invade Ukraine, um what was that going to look like because we cannot go back in time and model thousands of time the outcome of those specific events and so people believe that to a certain extent frequentist to the rules of frequentist probabilities do not apply there so how do you think about this and what will you say to people that follow this way of thinking um that that that's a wonderful question so here's what i would say so it is absolutely true that many of the famous results of probability things like expected value and um th- things like the central limit theorem and and so on they apply only when you can play the same game uh, many many times so if if you if you toss a toss a coin say zero zero is uh, heads and one is tails um the the expected value of that outcome is 0.5 but if you toss a coin once you're going to get either 0 or 1 you will never get 0.5 um, <laughs> so you're absolutely right that okay so then you can ask okay if i'm going to toss this coin only once then how how, how does the 0.5 help me because the 0.5 is a long run average if i toss the coin a million times and then um uh, take the average of those million i will get something close to 0.5 but how does it help me in this particular situation where i'm going to toss the coin only once and that's a perfectly reasonable question and i would say that in in situations like this uh the best application of probability theory is to 
position yourself in such a way that you will do reasonably well regardless of whether you get a zero or a one. So Mark Spitznagel, uh, who, who has worked with Nassim Talib, he has this wonderful quote saying that uh, in life, you, you will sort of have one path that is followed. You do not get the ensemble average of all possible paths. There is one path that will be taken uh, in, the, in the future. You don't know which path that is ahead of time. But one thing is for certain, you will not get the average of all possible paths. And there, there are people who think very deeply about these questions. Uh, so for example, Ole Peters with this theory of uh, ergodicity, uh, where they, 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 they have this, uh, this, this wonderful example where they say, okay, would you like to be, uh, if, if you didn't have a choice, you had to play uh, Russian roulette, say. Would, would you like to be the guy uh, who plays Russian roulette once? Or uh, would, would you like to be the guy who plays Russian roulette uh, six times? So Im- imagine that there are six guys playing Russian roulette. Would you like to be one of those six guys? Or would you like to be the one guy who's playing Russian roulette six times? Uh, the, the, the odds are very different uh, in, in, in the two cases. If, if you play Russian roulette six times, there's a 100% chance <laughs> if, if your gun has uh, one bullet in six chambers, there's a 100% chance that you will die. Uh, but if, you, if you're one of six guys playing Russian roulette, there's a one-sixth of a chance <laughs> that, that you will die. Uh, so so uh, ergodicity is uh, something that is, is the branch of science that tries to grapple with, with questions like this. Um, and I, I would say that uh, Mark Spitznagel has some wonderful ideas. Uh, basically, his ideas boil down to uh, if I can run an event only once, like an election or um, l- like the examples that you, you mentioned, then I should make sure that no matter what the outcome is, I should try to make sure that my losses are limited. Uh, I should not bet enormous amounts of money on the outcome of one thing, which could go either way. So even if I think that the odds of somebody winning an election are are 95%, I should still make sure that if the other 5% were to happen, I will still be reasonably comfortable. I won't lose a whole lot. That uh, I would say is one of the uh, fundamental ways in which probabilistic thinking applies uh, even to events where uh, there is only one possible outcome and you don't get to repeat the event multiple times. It's really interesting. I think this would be a good point to delve into some of your thought pieces because actually they're they're quite tied in with some of the things you've just talked about. So my, my personal favorite, well, it's actually two because they're, they're very closely linked. And I think they're probably the most specific for investing um, is around Shannon's demon and the volatility tax. So they're, they're two different thought pieces, and, but they're, they're very connected. And they tie in with ergodicity, which you just talked about. Um, could we spend a little bit of time just delving into that in a bit more detail? So m- maybe you could start just by explaining the problem that you set and so, yeah, it's a fairly simple, straightforward problem. But then we can talk through the ramifications of, of what that means going forward. 
Absolutely. Uh, the Shannon's demon is one of my favorite examples. And uh, volatility tax is such an important concept, but it is very often misunderstood. Uh, so let's start with the Shannon's demon. So Shannon's demon is this idea where you have an extremely volatile stock or asset or something like that. Now, let's say you have a stock. It is extremely volatile. Every day, the stock either doubles or halves. Uh, so uh, if, if the stock is at $100 today, uh, the stock may be at $200 uh, tomorrow, or it may be at $50. It could double or it could halve. And let's say that both these outcomes have a 50-50 chance. So there's a 50% chance of either outcome. Now, now the question is, uh, can you make money uh, from the stock over a long period of time? If, if you assume that the stock is going to either double or halve every single day, and um, each day is independent of all the others that came before, there's a 50-50 chance, regardless of what the stock did yesterday, today it's going to either double or halve, something like that. Uh, now, if, if you just think about this, uh, there are several interesting concepts that come out of this example. So the first thing you can do is you can calculate the expected outcome. So today, if the stock is at $100, what is the, the expected value of tomorrow's price? So it could be $200, it could be, 200, it could be $50. So if you just take $200 plus $50 divided by two, that is the expected value, and that is $125. So today the stock is at $100. Tomorrow, the expected value of the stock is $125. And so your expected return is 25% in one day. And that is a phenomenal expected return. Uh, this is called the arithmetic return. And so it, it looks like, okay, this is a positive expectation bet. So it looks like, okay, you have to go all in on this bet because it's, it's positive expectation. So you have to bet all your money on it. But the, the idea is that you, you should not bet all your money on this because it, think about what happens over the long term. Now, let's say, let's say you put your money, all your money into this stock and then you let it double and halve and so on. Over a long period of time, what's going to happen is the number of doublings and the number of halvings are going to be approximately equal to each other because there's a 50-50 chance of each. And the thing is, each doubling is going to cancel out a halving. So if you have a stock, it doubles and then it halves again, or it halves and then doubles, you're left with exactly where you started. So if you put whatever money you have into, into the stock and then you wait for a very, very long time, then over a long period of time, what is the most likely result that you're going to get? Well, the most likely result is if you, if you wait for, if you, if you play this game a thousand times, the most likely result is you'll get 500 doublings and 500 halvings in, in some order. And if you get 500 doublings and 500 halvings, you're left with exactly the same amount of money that you started with. So the return over these thousand days is 0%. The, the most likely return that you will get is 0%. So we had a positive arithmetic expectation of 25%. We, this was a positive expectation bet. But 
if you try to compound a sequence of such bets, what you end up getting is a 0% return. It's not the 25%. So this 0% is called the geometric expectation. So the arithmetic expectation of this bet is 25%, whereas the geometric expectation is 0%. And in situations where you let your winners ride, where you eat each bet works on uh, the previous bets successively, the, the bets all compound together. In situations like that, the geometric return is far more representative of what you'll be getting than the arithmetic return. So over a long period of time, if you go all in on this stock, the most likely outcome is you, you will not make any money. Uh, of course, there are some situations where you will make uh, a lot of money, but the, the most likely outcome is that you will make 0%. The, um, the, the beauty of, um, of this is, is that there is actually a solution to some degree. And, and yes, someone exactly. who's very clever, Claude Channon came up with that, um, exactly. that answer. So maybe, maybe you could talk us through how you kind of answer that. Right. So, so Claude Shannon, uh, working with this uh, guy called Kelly, John Kelly, uh, he came up with a beautiful solution to this problem where he said, no, you can actually make money out of this stock. Even though it seems like over a long period of time, you will get a 0% return. It does not have to be 0% because you don't have to put all your money into the stock each time. So Shannon's uh, policy for betting on the stock is very simple. So at each turn, you rebalance your portfolio. You have a certain amount of your uh, money in cash and you put a certain amount of your money into the stock. In this particular case, you keep 50% of your portfolio in cash and you put 50% of the portfolio into the stock. And then next day, what happens is when, if, if the stock were to double, what would happen is the stock part of the portfolio would increase and the cash part of the portfolio would remain exactly the same. So then what you do is you rebalance. So you sell some of the stock and get the money back into cash. But if the stock were to halve, then what would happen is you, you would, in order to bring the stock portion of the portfolio back to 50%, you would have to spend some of your cash to uh, buy the stock. So on days that the stock halves, you go and buy more of it. On days that the stock doubles, you sell. And this idea, this, this idea of rebalancing, is super powerful because now it lets you escape this difference between the arithmetic return and the geometric return. So the arithmetic return is 25%. The geometric return is 0%. Now, Claude Shannon's strategy gets you something like 6% per day. Uh, so if, if you follow this particular strategy that Shannon um, uh, discovered, what, what you would get over a long period of time, the most likely return that you will get is 6% per day. So you can't do as well as the arithmetic return. You can't get 25% per day. Uh, you can't compound at 25% per day over a long period of time. But you don't have to settle for 0%. You can actually get 6%. And the way you do that is through rebalancing. And that, that is the whole idea of the volatility tax as well. Volatility tax, it, it's not a tax imposed by a government or something like that. It is essentially the difference between the arithmetic return and the geometric return. Over a long period of time, you will get the geometric return if you go all in on a, on a stock, but the geometric return will be less than the arithmetic return. So 
even if you have a positive expectation bet the geometric expectation of that bet could be zero or even negative and the difference between these two is called the volatility tax and for investors it has uh, particular implications because stocks are volatile so if you have a more if if you had the option say to select a stock let, let's say stock a offers a 10% return uh, every year uh, like clockwork and stock b it could be either 8% or 12% so the average is still 10 but it, the stock b could give you either a plus 8% or a plus 12% return then over a long period of time stock a will actually um, uh, there's a very high chance that stock a will outperform uh, stock b and it's simply because of this volatility tax i think that you when you you wrote your piece or made available your piece on the volatility tax you started the thread making a reference to how investors and especially value investors that follow Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger make the point that they don't they publicly say we don't we don't care about the volatility of the stocks or the company because we are fundamental investors and so long term the only thing that matters is the fundamentals of the company but you made the point that um one should be very careful when you are listening to even to Warren Buffett to Charlie Munger because things like volatility do matter even if you are very focused on the fundamentals right uh that that is a great point and the idea is so when somebody like warren buffett or charlie munger when they make a statement they are very very careful in choosing their words uh so if you if you read one of warren buffett's letters uh he he might say something like you know we we prefer a, a lumpy 12% to a steady 10% or, or something like that uh and what a lot of people take away from this is don't care about volatility volatility doesn't matter what matters is the is the return that you get and it's true uh you would prefer a 12% to a a lumpy 12% to a steady 10% but that lumpy 12% has to be a geometric average not an arithmetic average uh, and a lot of people fail to realize this uh, so um you know if, if if i if i had a stock that could uh, uh that could double or half uh, that is that a lumpy 25% return no that is not a lumpy 25% return that is a 0% return because the geometric average is zero the arithmetic average is 25% so this is not a lumpy 25% return this is a 0% return uh, so when warren buffett says that he prefers a, a lumpy he, he's okay with a lumpy return if it's higher what he means is after accounting for the volatility tax he wants a higher lumpy uh, higher return and if that return happens to be lumpy he's okay he can live with that and the second thing is if you're focusing on even if you're focused on just the fundamentals if you believe that no no the stocks are not really uh, instruments that just go up and down they are based on some concept they they are based on the earnings and cash flows of the underlying company so you should not care about short term volatility you should in in the market price of the stock you should only care about the fundamentals of the company uh 
and yes that is true over a long period of time stocks uh, stock prices usually follow earnings and cash flows and the fundamental quantities of a company but there is not a single company on earth that can deliver the same return on capital every every single year so there is going to be volatility in the fundamentals as well so you may not be worried about the volatility in the market price of a stock but you still have to be worried about the volatility in the fundamentals so if some years a company earns 10% on capital and in other years the company earns 20% on capital then over a long period of time you will not get 15% return if you, if you believe that over a long period of time uh, the the market price of this company will follow uh, the 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 business performance that's fine but you still have to care about the volatility because over a long period of time you are not going to get the arithmetic average you will get the geometric average of 10 10 and 20% uh, so that is the most likely outcome have you have you met jake uh, jake taylor or have you come across him so he was a guest on the pod and he made this point which i i thought at the time was very powerful which was that he would he made that reference to warren buffett lumpy uh he that he would prefer a lumpy 15% than a steady 12% but jack taylor made the point that it's very some people don't realize the how difficult it is to endure the volatility that goes into uh though that 50% lump return and so for some people it's actually better to stick with a 12% return rather than the 15% return because volatility is just very difficult to endure um and i guess that goes hand in hand with what you were just saying Uh, yes absolutely so uh well a lot of people don't have the stomach to see their stocks drop by a lot uh, in a short period of time now there are several ways that this can come and hurt uh, a person so one one way this uh, seeing a sudden drop in your stocks can hurt you is if seeing the drop increases your chances of making a bad decision uh then this this is kind of a game with feedback instead of uh, just just a game where you get a lumpy return over time right because based on what you're getting you're going to change your strategy maybe you you get too scared and you sell out at exactly the wrong time and and so on that can really hurt you over a long period of time if you make bad decisions as a result of the volatility that you see but the second way where uh, this can hurt you is if you have your money in the market uh, or some volatile instrument and then uh, you have a sudden expense so uh, if if you have to withdraw money out of the market at exactly the wrong time then uh volatility can actually hurt you so if if let's say you're you're going to have an emergency expense you don't really know when this emergency expense is going to strike you um if if you have some uh, situation like that then it may be rational not not to take the lumpy high return uh but s- settle for a slightly lower return that is not as lumpy because you don't know whether you may have to withdraw money at exactly the wrong time because this other emergency hits you 
so Warren Buffett does not have to care about that kind of thing because even if his stocks go down 50% or something like that, um, he, he has plenty of money on, on the side. Uh, and, and so he can afford to play the long game and let, let his stocks ride over the long term. Whereas uh, for people like, uh, like us, we may be concerned about the maximum drawdown in our portfolio because who knows, we may be hit with an emergency. You know, people lose jobs during economic crisis. Usually when, when the stock market is uh, not doing well, um, usually when there's a crisis, the stock market is not doing well and people also lose jobs. So the time that they have to take money out of the portfolio uh, is likely to coincide with a time when stocks are down. So if you can afford to wait and let your stocks ride for a long period of time, you may not care much about volatility. Uh, but even in those cases, if you believe in fundamental investing, you have to care about the volatility of the fundamentals of the company, like earnings and cash flows and things like that. But if you are in a situation where you could uh, have a need for emergency cash, uh, and you would have to satisfy that need by liquidating a portion of your portfolio, then you may still prefer to have a portfolio that does not uh, exhibit too many drawdowns and too much volatility. I think, Andy, that you, we, we were talking about uh, the volatility tax uh, the other day uh, on the back of 10K's piece, but you were making the point that the volatility tax to a certain extent is mitigated when you build a portfolio. Is that correct? No, that, that's definitely something we've explored. And and you were talking about it before in terms of if you have the same situation, but with uncorrelated stocks, that you could actually get around the volatility tax through that purpose. But we'd love, love to hear your thoughts. Uh, right, absolutely. So if, if you have uncorrelated stocks, or uh, it, it works even better if you have negatively correlated stocks, uh, you can actually get an even higher return. So uh, in, in the case of Shannon's demon, there were two possible instruments you could put your uh, money in. There was cash and there was this extremely volatile stock, which was doubling or halving every single day. But suppose cash was not an option. Suppose the only options were stock one and stock two, say. Um, then uh, how, how does this play out? Each, each stock may be volatile, but if the two stocks are negatively correlated, then it's actually possible to get an even higher return uh, than the 6% per day uh, if the stocks are sufficiently negatively correlated and, and so on. So you, you, you can take advantage of negative correlations in, in a big way. If, if, if you can find two assets that are uh, reliably negatively correlated, then uh, you can build a portfolio out of them that gets even higher returns than what each individual asset can possibly deliver over a long period of time. Um, can you, for the benefit of our listeners and those that are not very technically driven, define what uh, uncorrelated or negative correlation means? Oh, absolutely. So uh, negative correlation just means um, if, if you have two, uh, two, two random events, say, um, uh, let's say that you have two stocks. Um, if I tell you that on a particular day, stock one went up, and then I ask you, okay, what is the likelihood that stock two also went up the same day? 
uh, if it turns out that stocks one and two, they generally move in opposite directions. A lot of the time they move in opposite directions. Um, then you call the stocks negatively correlated. Uh, so in, in non-technical terms, of course, there is a precise meaning uh, of negative correlation. You, you, you sort of have to, uh, it's, it's not just important uh, to see how often they move uh, in opposite directions. You should also see what the size of those movements are. So if, if stock one um, moves up 5%, um, if stock two has a very high chance of moving down, but it moves down only 0.005% or something like that, then, then the negative correlation is not that much. Uh, so generally, uh, if one thing moves up, the other thing uh, has a higher chance of moving down in some similar amount. If, if this holds, then you have two negatively correlated assets. Uh, uncorrelated means, uh, the moment of stock one tells you absolutely nothing about stock two. It's like uh, stock, stock one is a coin and stock two is another coin. Just because the first coin lands heads doesn't change the likelihood of the second coin landing heads or tails. They are two completely uh, independent events, uncorrelated events. Uh, where, whereas if, if coin one could somehow influence coin two, in such a way that uh, if, if coin one turns up heads, then coin two is more likely to turn up tails or something like that. Then you have negative correlation between the two coins. Thank you very much for that. Um, I believe you're a big fan of game theory, uh, but I don't think I have seen that many threads on your Twitter account on the elaborating on the back of game theory. Um, so how, I don't know if that's correct, so you'll correct me if I'm wrong. So um, how can you apply game theory concepts to the world of investing? And, or if we put it in, in another way, what tools and concepts from, from game theory can be useful to take away to help improve our decision-making and deal better with uncertainty? Uh, absolutely. So I, I have one uh, thread that is focused exclusively on game theory, where I talk about uh, Nash equilibrium and things like that. But in several other places, uh, in some of my other threads, I, I reference uh, concepts that I learned in game theory class. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you an example shortly. Uh, but at the end of the day, if, if, you, if you look at companies, uh, they, are, they are all competing against each other. So if you look at Visa and MasterCard, for example, uh, they, they are competing against one another. If you look at uh, Coca-Cola and Pepsi, they, they may be competing against one another and, and so on. So what we have uh, in, in, in a competitive situation, let's say company A is competing against company B. Now company B has a strategy that it is following and company A also has a strategy that it is following. But at the end of the day, the profits that these companies make it's not dependent on only what strategy they follow. It also depends on the strategy that their competitor is following. So for example, if company A's strategy is to go and slash its prices, say, uh, then company B, if it does not slash its prices, if, it, if company B's strategy is to just keep its prices high, then uh, people may opt to buy company A's product because it's cheaper. And so company B's profits may come down. So in this situation, company B's profits depend not just on company B's strategy, but also depend on what company A is doing. So 
a lot of life is like this you, you have to make decisions but there are also other people who are making decisions and the payoffs that you get depend on not just the decisions that you take but also the decisions that other people around you are taking uh and game theory is just a systematic way to analyze situations like this if you if you have a situation where your payoff does not depend exclusively on your strategy but it depends on the strategies that other players other people choose to adopt then uh game theory applies in in those situations and you know no, nobody operates in a vacuum uh investors are concerned about businesses businesses operate in markets markets have multiple players uh and and so on so uh the profits that businesses make uh depend on the actions of others it may depend on the actions of the of the federal reserve it may depend on the regulatory environment uh, uh so so the profit that a business earns is not completely within its control it has to deal with suppliers it has to deal with customers it has to deal with employees so so businesses deal with all these different entities and they all take decisions in a way to maximize their own self interest but that ends up affecting the outcome for all of these different people and so uh, game theory definitely applies uh, in 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 a systematic analysis of uh, these kinds of situations that's great thank you um we focused a load on on probabilities in in particular in in this podcast but we know that you've got loads of tools which you've put on your your twitter handle over the past 2 uh, years um if you were to leave people with one decision making tool which you think will really help people if you could choose one from all the ones you've looked at what what one do you think it would be oh that is a hard one <laughs> so Uh, as as charlie munger likes to say you know that if, to a man with a hammer everything looks like a nail so if if you have only one tool then there is a good chance that you will go and abuse that tool <laughs> and use it for all kinds of things that it is not to be used for uh so well all, all the concepts that we talked about uh, game theory and um, probabilistic thinking and and so on uh they they generally um up, apply to decision making but you sort of have to have a large number of different mental models because you know real life is is complicated and just having one tool uh may not be the right answer it it may force you to do things that you're not supposed to do and so on um yeah so <laughs> i, I i don't know what one tool i i would say this uh build an entire toolbox thank you we we are coming to an end of our conversation this has been fascinating and we always ask our guests two secret questions number one a book recommendation and i have this um, i have the suspicion that you are going to recommend us something on probabilities maybe <laughs> well i i can i can recommend a, a lot of books um so I, i love i love to read books and um, so uh, the the right kind of book recommendation for a person when people ask me for book recommendations i'm always a little um not i'm always a little wary about suggesting a book because what you take out of a book no no man crosses the same river twice as the saying goes so what you get out of a book depends on how much you know already about the subject of the book and 
um and and, and also on uh, what what your other experiences are whether you find value in a book or not depend depends strongly on on these factors but generally um the the books by nasim taleb are great if you want to familiarize yourself with basic ideas of probability uh if you want to learn about investing uh, i would suggest uh, read warren buffett's letters um and those those letters uh, have been uh, summarized in, in many books uh, one one book that i particularly like is uh, larry larry cunningham's uh, well larry cunningham has, uh, has a lot of different books on buffett uh, so s- some of his books uh, especially the the essays of warren buffett uh that that is a great book to understand the the basics of investing as laid out by by buffett um another great buffett book is uh, the the one by roger lewinstein buffett the making of an american capitalist um if you are interested in reading business biographies uh, to learn more about uh, specific kinds of businesses um, brad stone's book uh, the the everything store about amazon is uh, that's just a wonderful book to read um my my friend jimmy sunny he he recently wrote a book about the history of paypal uh, the the founders um, i i really love uh, the, the that book the it it he's managed to take a silicon valley uh, tech company and made it read like a like almost like a mystery thriller uh, <laughs> it, it's a page turner so i really like that book <laughs> uh so, so it's it, it's hard for me to recommend just one book <laughs> so um, i i think all these different books are, are great that's a great list i have to say that from your twitter account i did pick the recommendation in a book from you the survival game the survival game uh, uh, right so so th- that was my first introduction to to game theory uh, oh yeah and i said i will give you an example of where i use game theory in some other threads and uh, so there is this wonderful technique called backwards induction that i learned in one of my game theory classes and recently i used backwards induction to to solve this little game called the the devil's card game so so things like that you you will you will find game theoretic ideas sort of sprinkled uh, uh, throughout my threads uh, but the the survival game is is a is a non technical book about game theory so you don't have to know any math or anything like that uh, to read that book it's it's a it's a very good book uh, about uh, the, the fundamentals of game theory it goes through a lot of different games and what what is rational and what is not rational for for play each player in each game and and things like that it's it's a good read um we we enjoy uh, beautiful much. mind is also a, a good book about game theory we enjoyed very much your uh, your thread on the devils card game and we discussed that the other day on the team uh among different team members that was uh, that was a great thread at uh, the second and to let you go uh is um we always ask about an example of a bad decision that you've made uh where the outcome was poor due to bad process and not bad luck oh i uh, i think i'm an expert on on bad process simply because i have uh, i have so much experience in making bad decisions <laughs> <laughs> uh, well uh so so in investing when when i first started out investing um i i had absolutely no idea what i was doing so uh, i made a lot of bad decisions uh, and that all comes down to a uh, bad process in fact in any good decision i made was purely by luck when i first started out investing <laughs> uh, so so uh, w- one of the biggest mistakes i made as an investor early on is 
uh, I I was perhaps influenced a little too much by uh, Graham and Buffett, and I I started looking at price uh, above business quality. So first of all, I I did not even know if if you look at a set of financial statements, is is are these the financial statements of a wonderful business or are these the financial statements of a not wonderful business, terrible business? Uh, now I did not pay any attention to this, and I did not know how to even read the financial statements to try and get an answer to this question. Uh, so I, I was buying stocks that were uh, trading at a low PE ratio and and things like that. Um, I, I was focused very much on uh, value when it it turned out that maybe I should have bought some higher quality companies, uh, not not paying as much attention to the PE ratio as to the quality of the business. So when I first started out investing, this was in 2011, uh, there were some very uh, high quality companies that were trading at very, very reasonable prices and multiples, which Visa and MasterCard trading at something like 15 or 16 times earnings or something like that. Uh, I, I could have just bought those companies. Instead, uh, I, I bought companies that were trading at a PE ratio of um, uh, five, six, seven, eight, th- things like that. And uh, I, I lost a lot of money because they, they turned out to be uh, not, not great companies, not great investments. Uh, soon after I bought it, uh, the earnings would drop or something like that, and the stock would crash. And I would be left wondering, <laughs> where, where, where did I go wrong? I bought, I bought the company at a PE ratio of eight. How, how can I possibly go wrong with this decision? <laughs> and, and things like that. Uh, so so uh, I, I've, I've made a lot of mistakes. And <laughs> uh, so, so, so the, the, I, I can fill an entire podcast with all the decisions I made that went wrong because of bad process and not bad luck. As the value investors, we can we can totally relate to those experiences. Thank you, thank you very much for your time. This was absolutely fascinating. Oh, it was a delight. Thank you so much for having me on.